Mike Walsh, and you're listening to Between Worlds, the show that takes you over the horizon and beyond borders to bring you the global thinkers, innovators, and troublemakers whose ideas challenge the world as we know it. My guest in London today is Ali Passa, who's the CEO and founder of Babylon Health. Uh, Ali, it's great to meet you. I've been a big fan of uh, what you've been doing with the company and, of course, your, uh, your visions about the future of digital health. Uh, and it's great to finally meet you. Mike, it's wonderful to meet you. And I've been a huge fan of yours. That's Bigger a, fan that's than you a could terrible ever lie. I don't think you heard of me until a week ago. <laughs> no, but a week ago I started listening to your shows and it's wonderful work you do. Uh, I think my favorite bit is in the, in the talk you gave uh, for Wide Health when somehow you managed to set the podium on fire, <laughs> dropping a glass of water, but you just continued on like, uh, you know, without, without a bat of an eyelid. <laughs> uh, you know, the, the extraordinary thing about what you're doing with Babylon is I think you're solving a, a true pain point for many people, which is it's actually quite difficult to, to see a doctor under normal circumstances. Yeah. Um, can you talk a little bit about the, the origin story, about how you came to essentially deliver health services via people's phones? So <clears throat> I used to run a, a chain of hospitals. I built a chain of hospitals from scratch. We it's got circle, really right? That's right, Circle. Hmm. And we got really lucky. It went from nothing to 3,000 employees, hundreds of millions of dollars in revenue. And we took it public. And the reason I sold out, Mike, was... Because at the end of the day, 90 to 95% of our healthcare needs has nothing to do with hospitals. Right. It's for uh, diagnostics, consultations, preventions, getting you early before you end up at the crisis point. It's like, it's like we don't wait for a car to crash before no. we try to fix it, right? We, we, take we, it have to a mechanic. we have a mechanic, not just smash repairs. Exactly <laughs> right, exactly right. So, and, and, and I got into healthcare by accident almost. I, I was an entrepreneur, I became an investment banker, I hated it, I went back to become an entrepreneur again, and to an accident I had a series of knee surgeries because I used to do a lot of sports, and I thought surely we could do a better job than, than what hospitals were at the time. So, so as a fresh eye into healthcare, I kind of understood after a while I'm focusing on the wrong problem. The right problem is how do I, we put affordable, accessible healthcare into the hands of everybody else? And, and if you think about the healthcare system we got, even to do with the consultations diagnostics, which is supposedly the easy part, right? Uh, one in five of us can't get to see a doctor when we need to. Out mm-hmm. of those of us who do, one in eight of us gets misdiagnosed every time we have a consultation. Of those of us who get diagnosed and treated, a thousand of us a month, that's two 747s a, a, a month, die, die to what we call f- uh, avoidable mistakes. Mm. That in, and that is in UK, one of the richest countries in the world with one of the better health systems in the world. If you have a mental health issue, Mike, what do you think we do with you? We put you in jail. 75% of our jail inmates are people who had mental health issues that as children, as youngsters, were not treated, were left alone until they became drug addicts, alcoholics, uh, violence, or self-abusers and ended up in jail. Yesterday, last night, 2,000 people in Cook County Jail of Chicago stayed in confinement for no other disease but mental health. 
that's the state of the healthcare we got in the developed world. Right. And in developing worlds, 50% of the world population has no access to healthcare. And yet, they all have a device in their hand, a mobile phone. There are more mobile phones out there than there are people out there. So we sat back and said, if you want to put an affordable, accessible health care into the hands of every human being on earth, the most difficult part of that was to put something in to the hands of every human being on earth. Well, that is, now we've done that. That is already there. Other people done that. It's surely not now difficult to use that channel to give most people most of the healthcare they have on the devices they already mostly own. And that was the genesis of Babylon. Well, what I found really interesting about your approach is that a lot of people, you know, when they're thinking up ideas, <coughs> essentially look at their phone and go, let's create a new app. Uh, so it's technology for technology's sake. But for you, this was just a step on the journey, which was the bigger problem was how do we cost-effectively create more access? Um, and the phone just happened to be part of that solve equation, right? Correct. Technology is a tool. It's a mean. It's not an end. Right. And whatever technology you have today will become yesterday's story. Even in the last two to three years since I started Babylon, I remember when we started that we used to kind of go to people and people used to say, ah, is it a social network? If it's not a social network, we're not interested. <laughs> two years ago, it was, is it an on-demand economy? If it's not an on-demand economy, we're not interested. Now, is it artificial intelligence? That's the only thing we care about. In two, three years' time, that becomes commodity and people are looking for something. The truth of the matter is, uh, technology is a hammer. The problem is not the nail. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, when I look out to, to your wonderful office behind me, I mean, I see lots of pot plants and millennials. What I don't <clears throat> see lots of is doctors and nurses. Um, so you've obviously come up with some kind of new model for delivering these services that doesn't require you building a, a virtual hospital centralizing it. Can you talk a little bit about that? Sure. So we actually do hire as many doctors and nurses as we hire uh, the scientists, the engineers, the mathematicians you're talking about. Uh, when you look in our office, you see pods of about uh, 12 to 20 uh, people. Each of those pods consists of doctors, nurses, scientists, clinicians. So there are uh, doctors here? There are doctors here. They're all working hand in hand uh, with our scientists and teaching the machine how to be a doctor. Uh, and, and we can talk about this in, in greater detail, uh, but each of them is teaching a, a, a part of the doctor's brain. Uh, on how to ha uh, uh, a part of the machine's brain on how to be, to emulate the part of a doctor's uh, brain, but we also hire a large number of doctors, uh, more than the 150 people we have in here, who work from their homes, uh, who deliver services to our patients. But the truth of the matter is this, Mike: we are five million doctors short in the world. Hmm. There is no solution that you can put healthcare in the hands of every human being on earth if all you ever did was connect those human beings with doctors. That just is not going to work, right? So, I, so as a result, you need to figure out ways of solving people's healthcare problems without necessarily always connecting them to the resource that is expensive and rare. So we need to get greater leverage from the medical knowledge. Exactly right. And, and uh, obviously, part of your theory is that you can do that by getting doctors to work with developers to train systems. Uh, but are there other sources of leverage that you think? Yes. So, uh, 
So the other thing is understanding exactly what the needs of people are when, when they want healthcare. So if I drew a graph of complexity versus the time and, and, and put your healthcare needs inside that graph, at, at the very bottom of that graph, you the least complex, you sometimes wake up, you have a question to ask, right? Unless you have a friend who's a doctor, who do you ask that question from? So then there are times that you have a symptom, you want to check that. Then there are, of course, the times that the symptom is serious and you want to see a doctor. There's times that the doctor wants to send you to do a test and so on and so forth until you get to see a specialist, right? Now think about how do we deal with this in reality? If you have a question to ask, there is no one to ask, right? Mm -hmm. So nine out of 10 times you ignore it. One out of 10, you do see a doctor unnecessarily and block that system. If you have a symptom, you can Google it, but I tell you, every time you get cancer. <laughs> I, I went to a doctor once, he had a big sign. He's saying, you know, I refuse to treat professional athletes, large families and symptom checkers. <laughs> <laughs> there you go, right? And you can, so, so if you actually meet each of these needs separately, then what you find out is that the part that is expensive is highly manageable. So we launched the world's first uh, artificial intelligent triage nurse. And by triage, I mean, sometimes, uh, imagine if you have a headache, what do you do? You go to, say, a doctor, right? The receptionist gives you a leaflet. That's, the, uh, that's information. Google does that to you. Uh, IBM Watson wants to do it on a steroid, but that's giving you information. That's not clinical. Then you say, well, actually, I want to see whether this is serious or not. They send you to a nurse, and a nurse does what we call clinical triage. They risk assess you. And that's the uh, piece of uh, software we added to Babylon a few months ago. And, 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 and before we added it, we just did a clinical academic study that showed that actually the software was 17% more accurate than a nurse and 14% more accurate than doctors over 100 uh, clinical academic tests. And, and, and of course it would be because a machine is always better at looking at combination of billions of symptoms mm. than a human brain can. Is this right? just a, is this a static decision tree or is it? No. Is it more like machine learning where you're feeding the outcomes back into the... So we basically use uh, probabilistic graphical modeling that connects dynamically uh, these things together. And of course, at the end of this process, I and mean, it's a product that hopefully we will launch in Q1 next year, is we can actually diagnose. So we, the machine can actually tell you, and in our, in our labs in here, we're already doing it for parts of the body, where it tells you exactly what's your disease and what's the treatment associated with that disease. When the diagnosis is confirmed, uh, do you then tell the system that, uh, that essentially its uh, initial diagnosis was correct? Correct. So ah. that's so what it's, the so system it's a, it's a closed loop, right? Correct. Now, uh, this is something that we will launch in Q1, the diagnosis. Mm. At this stage, we just do the triage and we tell the system the triage was right. From the Q1 next year, we will tell it the diagnosis was right. And at some stage, at some stage, maybe in uh, who knows when, this becomes so good that maybe we can just give the answer directly to the, to the patient because our level of confidence is so high. And when you look at countries in which doctors are very rare, then a job of a doctor should not be just to diagnose. The job of the doctor should be to deal with patients that it's not enough to just give them a diagnosis, but you need to intervene, you need to act, you need to uh, So the, doc the doctors that you have working in these pods of developers and designers, 
what are they doing exactly? Like, how do, how do you best train a, a system to, to I guess, have the knowledge and intuition of a doctor? So how do you train a doctor? Right. So how do you train a doctor? A doctor's brain happened to be divided, if you wish, into five different uh, units that we care about, right? One is what we call the knowledge base. We teach them a lot about clinical stuff, right? Mm -hmm. Like just the reality of how to be biology, uh, diagnose, da, da, da. Second, they have an ability to talk and, and interact and draw information out from people. Uh, third, they have a logical clinical brain that can take that and diagnose or triage. <clears throat> Fourth, they have the ability to then predict the results that they take and say, well, unless you did do this, Mike, that will happen to you. Or if you did that, we'll correct it and the other will happen. And fifth, they learn from every interaction they do. Uh, that's why they call it the practice, right? Hmm. So it just happens those are five different branches <laughs> of the science of, uh, of uh, neural networks and, and artificial intelligence. So we have a team that gets the doctors to sit with our scientists and teach the machine each of those and link them together, very simply put. When you say teach, do you mean you're looking at different uh, potential situations and it's correcting the algorithm? Correct. Right. And then playing a lot of scenarios, mm. so the machine gets it right, and then gets it wrong, and then gets it right, and then gets it wrong, until it gets it wrong. You know, we're seeing this trend in many different areas, where there's a, there's a shift of, away from people from doing work to designing work. Yes. And, and uh, there was a, I think there was a very interesting, um, in, the, in, the, in the October edition of the Harvard Business Review, there was, a, there was an article about noise and decision making, which essentially says that experts, whether they're oncologists trying to recognize a tumor or real estate agents trying to value a property, they, they tend to, even with their same knowledge base and experience, make completely different decisions on different days. Um, so we're, we're actually, we're not particularly good at being reliable decision makers. Absolutely not. Um, but algorithms are. It's just that we have to design better algorithms. Yes. So do you think in the future, doctors will primarily be designing algorithms rather than doing, doing work? Or, I mean, what is the future relationship between doctors and, and AI systems? So I was born in the Middle East. And in the Middle East, they say, if you want God to laugh, you give him your two-year plan. <laughs> <coughs> and that's just the absolute truth. We just have no idea. Yeah. I have teenage children, and I, I honestly cannot tell them what the future will be great for them. I remember that uh, when I was choosing my own degree uh, back in the 80s, I'm, I'm pretty old, uh, my, uh, I asked my mom and dad, and they said, look, this thing, electronic engineering, who knows uh, what is that all about? Civil engineering, the world always wants buildings. And I started as an engineer and then switched my PhD into, into, into physics because I thought, like, the world always needs buildings. So my, my mother said accounting, so it was even worse go. for me. Right. <laughs> so, so, and the truth is that the jobs that became the builders of future were not the jobs we were training people in the 80s for. We were yes. training in the 80s people for the jobs that built the 60s, 70s, and, and the time before that. Uh, I, I do not believe, personally, now, if I was going to look into a crystal ball, I do not believe doctors will do in future what we're just talking about. 
so I don't think they will do diagnosis. I don't think they will do anything that machines can do naturally better than human brain. I think they will do a lot of things that human brain currently can do much better. Empathy, bedside interventions, manner. bedside manner, helping you through the challenges of uh, recovery. Uh, uh, but, but even those are now coming under question. Right? right. So we can st- we are starting to put empathy into machines. We are starting to be able to get the tone of voice right. Uh, I mean, remember, not every doctor is a good doctor, right? In terms of empathetic uh, doctor, not every doctor is a sympathetic doctor. Uh, I had a friend recently who told me he was given a dreadful news by a doctor. His father was given a dreadful news by a doctor. In a very, as a matter of fact, thing you have. A tumor, it's going to take a few weeks. I think if I was you, I would enjoy my life, right? I mean, that was it. <laughs> a machine could have done at least a better job. Well, I know. And it makes you wonder, do you spend 10 years studying, you know, to be able to really just deliver bad news and hand someone a jelly bean? You know, so. No, but, but look, the, the, the truth is, our body, we know so, so little about our body and about medicine. Uh, and the frontiers of discovery in this are so huge mm. that the idea that we can figure out everything that needs to be figured out about it today is it's just not true, right? It's just we're just delving more and more in. You look at what the world of intervention in medicine, right? Mm. If it's laser manipulation or, or ultrasound intervention, if it's uh, electrobiology, synthetic biology, if it's organ reconstruction, DNA manipulation, molecular engineering, we are on trenches of melting everything, everything that is solid mm-hmm. into air and reconstructing out of this fog new shapes and new realities. So, so to use your car analogy, if you were studying today to be in the medical field, we, we actually don't need more doctors, we need more designers, architects. Uh, because the mechanics, the plumbing, uh, the maintenance can be better done in the future by artificial intelligence. Which is, by the way, done with your car, right? Yeah. Who takes your car into mechanics anymore? What happens is we've embedded so many <laughs> sensors in yeah. your car that it tells they just put you that, And they just put it in a new module. They don't exactly. try to fix things anymore, right? Exactly that. Yes. Uh, you know, I read recently that um, Mark Zuckerberg was donating a, a huge amount of money to, I think he said he was going to try and cure all diseases. Uh, and I think beyond, beyond those grandiose claims are this sense that these new systems and platforms and algorithms will help us at a at scale to, to think about disease in the human body in new ways. And I know DeepMind, who I think is one of your investors, right? Well, the founders of DeepMind. The founders of DeepMind. Yes. Uh, they've been working, uh, uh, you know, to look at uh, digital eye scans. Yes. Um, so, so, you know, what have you seen where, I guess, at that architectural level, uh, these new machine learning systems can potentially help us think in new ways about the human body? Well, I mean, you look at every area that requires a huge amount of modeling and understanding. My, my area, physics, right, before mm. I, I got into healthcare. Um, I remember sitting down, writing equations, solving equations, weeks in, weeks out, with hand and a calculator. And eventually, we started kind of losing, losing spreadsheets, but they were very rudimentary. Who does take weather predictions today with hand anymore, right? We have huge machines uh, that predict uh, with great level of granularity micro 
ecosystems of our weather uh, systems, right? Uh, and and uh, but, but that doesn't mean our scientists are gone away. That means our scientists are now being able to do more and more of that to be able to tell us in greater deal of uh, precision, not just what the weather in UK is like, but how the weather in each of our towns, cities, villages going to be like, and not just during the day, but hour by hour, almost, mm. right? And that is where we need to get to with human body. We're nowhere near that. i give you an example. One of the things that we are trying to start thinking about in here, uh, which we don't talk about publicly, it's, it's all around, can we do the same modeling for your body? Right? Mm. Nobody has ever in the world started doing thinking about why can we not do with the biosystem that is your body your personal we your personal weather report why what we do with your with your physical system that is the air, uh, that, that is the weather uh, the we are we are on this we're scratching the surface of what is possible well, what is required to do that is it I mean, it's not just thinking abstractly about the human body works. You actually need very personal data points, correct? But your question, I think, is is more important than the details of what is required to do that. I tell you what is really required to do that. What is really required to do that is for us to get on with it and do it. <laughs> and, and that is the most important thing. Mm. We spend so much human ingenuity figuring out why something cannot be done. Humans actually sound more intelligent when they say, ooh, that cannot be done. Or what, let me give you five reasons why this is difficult, right? In, in, in a group, you just sound more mm. intelligent, right? I love the humans who sit back and say, well, actually, if, if, if it's not me, then who's going to do this? If it's not now, mm. then when? I love, uh, I was yesterday at the last night at the 25th celebration of the uh, launch of the big issue, launched by a wonderful man, John Byrd, uh, and a group of others who's, who were homeless, sat back and said, you know what, we're not going to hand out to the homeless. We're going to give them a hand up. We're going to give them something they can sell to get off the streets. 25 years later, it's happening across the globe, and thousands and thousands of homeless people have reconstructed their lives. Why? Because an individual or two decided they're going to break that thing. I think what is required in every field of human endeavor is for people to get off their backside and do what can be done. I think implicit as well in this is a very different way of looking at the problem in the sense that most of medicine is about sickness. But what you're talking about in a way is setting a baseline for what wellness is. If we can actually understand what is the optimal personal level of, of actually feeling good, then we can change our approach completely. Exactly right. It is, it's, you don't wait. Uh, for your car to break down, to go fix it, you maintain it. Mm. Uh, you, your body, we spend so much time making sure that we're doing better or maintaining what you got. This event when you get sick and we need to fix you is a very rare event. Yes. vast majority of your life, you're healthy, you're just not at your optimum level of your health. You could do better, right? We have perfectly healthy people out there who never get sick and therefore never go to see a doctor, who, if we intervene properly, we can elongate their life by seven, eight, ten years, yes. right? 
and, and, and that's what we need to do. And we can make them happier, healthier, more active human beings. That is the job of a healthcare organization. The job of a sick care organization is all the things we call currently healthcare. That's not healthcare, it's sick care. I, one of the things that intrigued me most about your app was uh, the ability to connect and plug into all these devices, devices that collect data. And it was like a hypochondriac stream. And I think you, you you described it as, you know, we can basically kit out your home to be better equipped than a, an emergency room. <laughs> you know, to have the ability to better track data. Um, what happens with that data now? Uh, let's say you've gone nuts and you've installed every kind of sensor and you're monitoring every sort of biometric signal from your body. Uh, does that go into your personal profile where you can track it? But then how do, do your doctors then actively monitor that? So... The alerts will go to our doctors who will then talk to you. At the moment, we have a very dumb solution which just collects that data for you and present it to you. So if you look at my phone, I know everything about You get like a dashboard. Yeah, from my liver to my kidney to my heart to my da-da-da, everything. What we're building now is is the ability to put predictive analytics on the data we have to predict your future and tell you, hey, Mike, this, the trend, the way it's going, this is what's going to happen. And, 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 and we've done it on people like me. And if you look at my cholesterol, it was, was ridiculously high. And people wanted to put me on a statin. But actually, by doing a series of other actions, uh, we, uh, I brought my cholesterol completely under control. Right? And, and it wasn't like killing myself with eating uh, and delicious food. <laughs> it was by actually being a little bit more active and da da so, so I actually think that we are going to move healthcare from the point that we just look at the data, wait for disaster to happen, then fix you to a place that we can continuously monitor you, look at the trends, predict your future, help you to get it right. And that's not just about run a little bit more, more or not silly stuff, but, but superficial stuff like 10, 10, take 10,000 steps, but much more about clinical stuff that keeps you at the peak of your health. This will become very interesting, I think, when we see more personalized medicine. Uh, I mean, now that the cost of uh, sequencing your genome is falling to below $1,000, in a way, this is going to be one of the first areas where there's such a huge cognitive load around having to work out all the drug interactions around someone's personalized genetics that we will need these systems. But once we've got them in place combined with your personal data, it's going to, be, it's going to really change the way we think about treatment. Exactly right. You're exactly right. And, but I, I, the next frontier of medicine is exactly what you say, which is how do we personalize your treatment and treat you and fix you. But I tell you, the frontier after that is how do we make sure you don't get ill most of the times, right? And the frontier after that is how do we elongate your life? And the frontier after that is how do we stop the causes of what is killing you, right? Uh, I mean, fundamentally, we all age for a simple reason. Our cells do not reproduce themselves in the way that they should. They're kind of like the old analog photocopiers that every time they reproduce themselves, they do it a little bit worse than the previous time. Imagine if we could do with ourselves what we already have the clue of, which is your cancer cell. Your cancer cell reproduces itself incredibly fast and incredibly accurately almost, right? right? Imagine if we could do that with all your cells. Imagine if we figured out how your cells replicate themselves 
precisely, energetically, thing. we can deal with aging. So I it, would be, it would be an irony if we eventually use some form of cancer to make ourselves live longer. Wouldn't it be? <laughs> I think there is always the clue of our destruction is always of of our survival is always, always in, in our a, destruction. Yes, and you know when you this is especially poignant. I think when you look at the emerging world, and I know you've been doing some work in Rwanda now. Have you, have you launched there? That's we launched in Rwanda a beta version four weeks ago. Oh, congratulations! Thank you. Uh, will you be using Rwandan doctors, or yes. you, do you think that the global delivery model is to have doctors anywhere in the world? Or? Yes. Right. At the moment we have this, uh, if you ask me, completely protectionist caste system. It's actually racist at its cause, at its root, if you wish, that says that if you're a British person, a British doctor should look after you. If you're a Rwandese person, a Rwandese doctor should look after you. If you think about it, its root cause, it almost says human beings are different based on the nationality and the jurisdiction they're in. That's just nonsense. Yes. Human beings are human beings, right? Maybe some diseases in tropical areas are different, but doctors in other parts of the world can, can, can learn it. At its root, it's a way for a, it's a protectionist old mm. caste system, right? It is what it is. Uh, we are not uh, about to change that. But the day that can be changed, there is no reason why a doctor in India cannot see a patient in Rwanda uh, or in East Africa. There are parts of the world that are over uh, capacity, have uh, over capacity in doctors, and there are parts of the world that are massively short. Uh, meanwhile, we are using artificial intelligence to bridge that, uh, and, and there are parts of the world that have very open-minded governments who are actually starting to say that, look, my loyalty is to my people, yes. not necessarily to one profession, so I'm going to allow these people to access uh, more. And by the way, the rich always have done that. I mean, London is full of tourists, uh, medical tourists, who come here and, and seek our uh, clinicians. We don't say, oh, I'm sorry, you don't have the visa or the passport of this country. As long as you can pay for it yourself, of course, go ahead and see them. <laughs> I mean, it is the irony and the hypocrisy in this. Uh, we, 50% of the world population, have no access to healthcare. People are dying, are suffering for diseases that are incredibly simple to solve but they have no access to this solution. Um, and I think that's good news in some ways because we don't need to worry about robots taking over our jobs when we have so many big problems still yet correct. to conquer. Correct. <laughs> I, I genuinely think in the short term, look, as we talked about, the world is short of five million doctors. Let's get our doctors leveraged operationally. Let's get them to do more. Let's stop them from doing s s simpler stuff. Focus them on the more complex stuff and let them reach on. You know, I tell you something, we don't, we don't publicize that, but by the time your piece comes out, uh, uh, do you know how many people in the first four weeks of us launching a beta version in Rwanda registered on Babylon? How many? More people registered in our first four weeks than registered for mobile money in the first year. My of uh, launching in Rwanda. And mobile money, one of the biggest success stories of, uh, the, of, of the uh, 21st century adoption of technology in East Africa. Well, um, Ali, it's been a great inspiration talking to you. Thank you for being on the show. Mike, thank you so much for having me.
You've been listening to Between Worlds. For more episodes and information on how to subscribe to our podcast, please visit www.mike-walsh.com slash betweenworlds.